Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22? A few months ago, we studied Matthew 22, 23 to 33 in our Sunday morning worship, and we're going to return to it and rehearse some of the things we found at that time. But then we're going to turn to the second part of this text, which has to do with heaven and learn a little bit about heaven. And so let's read together the word of God. Uh, It's eternally true. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, let's set the big picture. We're in the middle of a section where the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time is getting more intense, ever more intense, ever more intense. And it's been intense up until now. And where we go after this, it's going to be very, very difficult for you because you're going to run into chapters that have to do with this conflict. Thank you, dear brother. And thank you. And what we need to remember as we watch the conflict growing is that this conflict was not... God did not choose to have Jesus come 2,000 years ago because this was a time when the church was unfaithful to him, but at all other times the church has been faithful. That's the way that we distance ourselves from what goes on in Scripture. We set it over here and we think, well, thank God now we're all filled with faith. We all have a proper view of of spiritual things. Back then they, they were nasty. So that uh, we're able to look at this period of time right now as being uh, the norm. They were bad. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why he had to die. That's why he had to confront them. So as we go through these confrontations, it's important that we realize the steady state of the church is unbelief. The steady state of the church is not belief. Now, if that's difficult for you, think also of the fact that the steady state of a Christian is suffering and persecution. The steady state of a Christian is not escaping notice. And if that's difficult for you, think that the steady state of our bodies in this life is decay. It's not health. It's not bliss. It's not, you know, every day in every way my body looks nicer and nicer. Right? And so the church, our bodies, the witness of a Christian, all of these things are in a world that is opposed to the things of God. Jesus said, In this world you will have many persecutions, many sufferings, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. 
And this is going to have application to our text as we get to the end of it. And so we see the confrontation goes from this to this to this to this to this. And we're not done with it. And it's going to keep going and going. And then, surprise, Jesus ends up getting killed. All right. Now, the confrontation today is the confrontation between the Sadducees and Christ. And the Sadducees are Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that's why they're Sadducee. All right. Now, the Sadducees didn't just deny the resurrection. They also denied the existence of angels. All right. And so what kind of men were the Sadducees? Well, we all know them because we're in a university community. The Sadducees are the sophisticates. They're the intellectuals, aren't they? The Pharisees were the fundamentalists, Jerry Falwell. The Sadducees were the sophisticates, all the people that looked down at Jerry Falwell. All right? And the Sadducees, uh, one of the interesting things is that the Pharisees were the darlings of the women. And the Sadducees, women didn't like them. Remember in Boulder. We were with Zebra a couple years ago out in Boulder, and there was a man speaking. And you know, Zebra, Zebra, raise your hand. Some people don't know you. This is Zebra. And Zebra is not somebody that goes around finding people to be opposed to. I mean, if you know Zebra at all, you know that she has a generous spirit. But I'll tell you, when this man got done speaking, there was a whole group of young pastors and uh, they were all cocky because they were all jocks. And so, you know, they thought that they couldn't be misled. But Zebra watched them, and she knew they were being misled by this man at a very serious point. And it was fascinating to watch Zebra. Zebra had true north. It just, she just had it. And her concern, actually, was very feminine. Her concern was not simply anger at the man that was misleading. Her concern was for all the pastors and that they were going to be misled by this man. And so what? Women didn't like the Sadducees. But of course, it, it, that doesn't mean anything. Oh, but there were men that didn't like the Sadducees too. What are you talking about sex for? Everything's sex, 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 sex. Well, because you are sexual. And you need to learn who you are. And you need to learn to trust women's intuition because it's not stupidity. And women intuitively knew the Sadducees weren't to be trusted. Why? Well, because the Sadducees looked down on all the stupidity of the common man. And what is the stupidity of the common man? Well, usually in religious things, it starts with understanding that we are not done when we go in the ground. I don't care where it is in history, where it is in the world, women don't believe that. Why? Because God gave them love for their children. You say, well, that's just women that have had children. I say, no, women know this. Why? Because women love, because women are generous, because women know that God has not given their generosity to be done in a few years, three score, ten, or four score, if by virtue of strength. A woman that loses her husband, mourns her husband, and waits for the day when she will be reunited with him. But the Sadducees look down on them. And they consider them ignorant. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in angels. And 
And so they were really what? Well, they were Greek philosophers with a patina of Judaism. You know, I mean, you know that they believed in the resurrection, but the resurrection was redefined, so it wasn't the resurrection. The resurrection was some sort of cosmic yin-yang kind of thingamabagi. You know, it was like, you know, well, we will exist, you know. We we will be a part of something larger. And, of course, women know that's not true. Women know that Paul says that Jesus Christ died for him, that it's me. I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Very, 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 very personal, isn't it? And so to be a part of a cosmic whole that somehow gives us meaning after death, but not personal meaning, is not satisfactory to women, is it? But it's satisfactory to sophisticates and to intellectuals, isn't it? Because they're above our corporal existence, our corporeal existence. They're above our flesh. They're above physical life. They're above all these things that, that, that pull us down. But living in our brains, we know we're above this fleshly existence. When we go to the bathroom, it doesn't phase us. We know that someday we'll be done with that. And so they believed in something, but it wasn't the continuation of the body, was it? They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they come to Jesus because they're opposed to him. They're trying to cut him down. And they bring to him a dilemma, a problem. And the problem is this. In the Old Testament, the law was given that if a man died without an heir, that his brother was to take his widow and have sex with her to produce an heir. And this was commanded in Scripture. And so they make up a situation, although it looks like it's probably a real situation. They actually knew somebody like this, where a man marries a woman. He dies without an heir. So she goes to his brother. He dies without an heir. She goes to his brother. She goes through seven separate men, and then she dies. And then she goes to heaven, and they trot out this question. And the whole purpose of the question is to show how ludicrous the faith of the little people is in the resurrection of the body, right? Whose wife will she be in heaven? She's been married to them all. Whose wife will she be? And this is often the case when people want to make fun of Scripture. They'll come up with some situation that is impossible to reconcile with the text of Scripture. They'll trot it out, and they'll say, you're a fool for believing that, because look at the dilemma that you end up with. And the assumption is that you don't have a way out of your dilemma. Now, Jesus is dealing with religious leaders. Remember, in Scripture, it's the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And they're the religious leaders. So he's dealing with religious leaders. So Jesus, being very, very tactful and polite, says what to them? Jesus says, you err, what? Not knowing Scripture or God. It's a way to influence friends, isn't it, when they're religious leaders? Tell them they don't know the holy book and they don't know God. You are not knowing scripture nor the power of God. So that's the condition of the Sadducees. God says to them, you don't know the Bible and you don't know me. 
So how serious was the error of the Sadducees? Now, I want to make a point here from the text, which is um, a rabbit trail that's important. All right. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see that verse 24 has a bunch of words in upper caps. They're printed in a way that is to signal to you as you read it visually that this is a quote from the Old Testament. You see that? Now, what would I possibly have to say about that quotation from the Old Testament? You all know, or many of you know, that today there are many evangelicals who are trying to change the Bible so it doesn't offend feminists. And they're taking a whole bunch of words that are in the Greek and Hebrew and changing them so they're gender neutered. So they don't have any connotation of sexual identity of man. So in the Old Testament, for instance, the word, the Hebrew word Adam, which is the same word for the first man, Adam, we say Adam. Adam's name is used as the word for the entire race all through the Old Testament. In other words, the race is named by the male of the species and not the female. But that's offensive to people today. So translators and, and publishers and, and uh, printers are all uh, conspiring today to, to hide from you the fact that God chose to name the race by the male of the species. We all understand that, right? Makes perfect sense. All right. And so other people say, well, no, that's wrong. The Hebrew is Adam. Retain the sexual identity of the word if you're going to translate it. Don't translate it person because person doesn't communicate man. And they say, yeah, but you know women are included. And you say, yes, women are included in Adam. And so the conflict goes, and they will trot out one argument, and the argument is this. They'll say, look, if you go to the New Testament and you find places like this where the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, what you'll find is that the New Testament quotation of the Old Testament is inaccurate. And this is such a case. The quote isn't identical. And if God, quoting God... God in the New Testament, quoting the God of the Old Testament, is able to change the words of the Old Testament. We can do it, too, because it's for a good cause. And that probably is actually the most sophisticated argument there is in favor of doing what they're doing. In other words, there's no better argument than this. Now, how do you meet the argument? If God can do it, why can't we? Because it'll, it'll, it'll keep women from such identity issues. I mean, does a woman really have to be called man? You know, it's so obnoxious. I mean, men are obnoxious. So the answer is this. There is a difference between quotation and translation. Think about it. If you're quoting somebody and you're not writing in the newspaper where you have to use open quotes, close quotes, and ellipses, because, of course, they didn't have them back then, all right, what is important in a quotation? The only thing that's important in a quotation is that you are accurately summing up the sense of the quote that you are using. That's it. In other words, you can't twist what somebody else said to suit your purposes. You have to be faithful to it. So all the ancillary, all the surrounding, all the, the subordinate parts of the quotation can be changed as long as you're faithful to the part you're using. That's it. That's it. That's all. 
So the fact that the Old Testament and the New Testament, when it's quoted, is not word for word, doesn't mean that God says that a translator can, like, take liberties with translation. There's a difference between quotation and translation. This quote is different in the New Testament from the Old Testament, okay? And that's perfectly proper. It's not a violation of the Old Testament text. Now, that's the rabbit trail. Now, we look at Jesus' response, and we look at him dealing with religious leaders, and we see that he says, here's your error, all right? Number one, you're mistaken not knowing the, uh, not understanding the Scriptures. Number two, you're mistaken not knowing the power of God. So what we learn here is that it's imperative that we understand the Scriptures and that we know them. Right? And if you're an evangelical, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, in other words, if you're part of the conservative part of the church and not the liberal part of the church, you know that that's central to our identity. We're a Bible-believing church. We believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. I have no problem affirming inerrancy, that the Bible is true not simply in what it teaches, but in everything that it records, that there's not a jot or a tittle not the tiniest punctuation mark of Scripture. Nothing that is in error. That's what I believe. I don't say that because I have to say that. I say that because I joyfully affirm it. I say it because man, again and again and again, my entire life, the most sophisticated man, the most scientific man, has been proven to be a liar. Not simply an error, but a liar. All right? When I've been quoted by newspapers that have a reputation for accuracy, they twist my words and they lie. When I get all concerned about nuclear energy and think that it's the same thing as the nuclear bombs and spend years of my life trying to get people to be against nuclear energy, this is me, okay, I learn that actually acid rain is like produced by more gentle forms of energy production. You understand? And then I begin to think about plutonium and its half-life, and I begin to think, you know, maybe things aren't as clear as I thought. When I'm concerned about diapers filling up the trash uh, heaps, or what do they call them, sanitary landfills, all right, then there's this dude down at the University of Arizona that does studies, digs of landfills all over the country, and he finds out that disposable diapers are absolutely nothing in a landfill. You know what landfills are filled with? They're filled with newspapers. The intellectual Sunday morning. That's what they're filled with. And so I go through my life and I see again and again and again that the scientists and the environmentalists and everybody that I cherish, very commoner, you know, you can't have exponential growth of consumption of a finite fossil fuel without, you know, and then what happens? All of a sudden there's huge increases in natural gas deposits found around the world. And I believe that, you know, China and India can never be self-sufficient. Undoubtedly in the 90s we're going to have mass starvations by the millions, right? Remember? Some of you remember this, the Club of Rome and all that, right? And then all of a sudden the Green Revolution hits, and guess what? India and China are self-sufficient in food. You see, all the things that you've been told, all the things that you're being told now will pass. And Jesus says what? 
He says the word of God will never pass away. Never. I never, ever even blush to affirm the authority of Scripture with academics. Never. (laughs) Remember, Chesterton, all the talk of what is latest in academia is merely the giggling excitement over fashion. That doesn't mean truth isn't discovered. It doesn't mean that I don't want to go to the best hospital in the country for my brother to be treated for cancer of the esophagus. It doesn't mean that technology doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that there isn't progress. It doesn't mean that we don't discover things. It doesn't mean that going to the moon was actually a shell game put on for television so we could all think we were sophisticated, which is what many people believed at the time, that it was false. But look, the Bible, this book, this book is true. This is true. Every single word in it, every single word, this book, it's true. And you know it's true why? You know it's true because it records the sins of the people that wrote it. It's particularly careful to tell you about the patriarch's wickedness. You ever thought about that? In the Institutes, there's this wonderful section where Calvin goes on and on about the wickedness of the patriarchs. I've never, ever had Calvin speak to my soul like reading that section of the Institutes. And then you realize, why don't Christians write biographies anymore the way the Bible does? The way Augustine did with the confessions where his biography, his autobiography was a confession of his sins. Why don't we write like that anymore? And so Jesus faults them with not what? with not knowing the Bible. And you think about how your life is taken up studying the ancient Greek and Latin classics. You guys. You know, and you think about how your life is taken up with law. Your life is taken up with music. You think of how your life is taken up with all these pursuits. What are the priorities with your children? Well, they're going to learn to play soccer. Taylor is involved in a debate with David Wagner. He's my son. He's 16. And he's involved with a debate with a guy in Africa over whether or not he should be a part of a pool, a bracket pool, all right, for the NCAA tournament, which he won, by the way, one of them, the one that had money involved. I found out after he'd put the money in, but I really don't. Well, I better not say that. And so David Wagner is faulting him for uh, being a part of a pool. And David sends him all this stuff about how gambling is connected with organized crime. It's violent. It's a way of escaping work. And Taylor says, wait, 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 wait. This is not escaping work. He says, I have worked hard all year to know everything you can know about these teams. Now, think about your children and think about yourself. April 15th is coming. How well do you know the tax code of the IRS? How well do you know it? And then I ask you, how well do you know the Bible? You can parse the tax code to within an inch of your life. You can parse it so you know precisely where the distinction between taking advantage and lying is. Right? (laughs) 
But when it comes to parsing the Bible, violin, voice, chess, makeup, adoption laws, immigration, painting, liability, oboes, reeds, making reeds. Some of you know and have spent your life studying the hurts that other people have done to you, but you don't know the Bible. You don't know what the Bible says about forgiveness. You know how you know what your heart is towards the Word of God? You find the thickest wall of your heart. And then you look at how that wall in your heart responds to the Word of God. And that's how well you know and honor the Word of God. I talk about sex all the time in this church. Why? Because sex is the thickest wall of our culture's heart in opposing God and His Word. We hate what the Bible says about sexuality. You know what's interesting? The Sadducees had a level of authority of Scripture. And you know what they put at the top? They put at the top the Pentateuch, which is the first five chapters of the Bible, namely Moses. Notice here they quote Moses. And then underneath the Pentateuch were all the rest of the parts of the Old Testament, relegated to subordinate, you know. And isn't it interesting today that the evangelical feminists have what? Up here is what? Up here is Jesus. And then what? Where's Paul? Although he grew until finally he was able to allow Galatians 3.28 to escape his lips. And that was the, trajectory, the hermeneutical trajectory he was headed on. We always have sophisticated explanations for the hardness of our hearts and our lack of love for the Word of God. And if you want to know whether you love the Bible and trust it, look at the thing you don't like that it says. Always look for the thing you don't like. And then precisely at that point, you find out what your real authority is. The Sadducees, their authority was not God and his word. Their authority was their own mind and their own sense of who God would be if he was a God that they would make. And so they erred not knowing Scripture and not knowing the power of God. Their Bible was impotent and their God was powerless. Because how would God get himself out of the dilemma of having a woman who had been married seven times and then you get to heaven? You err not knowing Scripture, not knowing the power of God, right? Now let's go to heaven. Jesus says, for what? What does he say? Somebody read it. Can't hear you. That's right. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
You are not knowing scripture or the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this is an interesting text because this is about the only place in the Bible where it says anything substantive about what our relationships are going to be like in heaven. There's really almost nothing else. You can go to David's loss of his son, the infant son that God took as punishment. You remember that. And David says, he will not return to me, but I will go to be with him. And then you have this. And so there may be a couple of other places, but really there's not much in the Bible about what our relationships will be like in heaven. There's much about what our relationship with God will be like in heaven. There's much about the worship of God. There's, but when it comes to our relationships with each other, there isn't much. Now, if you take David's statement, we can get from David's statement that we will know each other in heaven, right? Because how can David look forward to and take comfort from the fact that he will go to be with his son if he doesn't know his son, if his son has no individual existence in heaven, if he's not able to recognize his son. You say, well, it was a little baby. And I say, I don't know how that stuff works. But whatever way it works, it does work because David says, I will go to be with him. And so we can take comfort in the death of our little ones, comfort in the death of our husbands and our wives, comfort in the death of friends, that we will go to be with them. And we know that means that we will recognize them and we will be able to renew fellowship with them in heaven. And then we come to this text where it says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And what do we take from this? Well, we take from this that there is not marriage in heaven. Many people would think that you can take from this that there is not sexuality in heaven. Now, you say, what do you mean sexuality? And I say, I'm not talking about physical intimacy. I don't use the word gender because the word gender is a social construct and therefore it's completely meaningless. It only bears whatever weight you want it to bear. But sexuality is biological. It's in the flesh. It's very clear. So when I say that the Bible does not teach in this text that sexuality will be done with in heaven, what would be my basis for saying that? <clears throat> because number one, it doesn't say here sexuality is done, does it? It says what? It says marriage is done. doesn't say anything about you and I will not be male and female in heaven. <clears throat> and so there's no reason based on this text to think that sexuality will cease to exist and will all be asexless, you know, sort of neutered kind of metro kind of things in heaven. Right? Let me read to you a couple of quotes on this subject that I think are very, very good. Uh, number one, Augustine. Augustine says this about heaven and sexuality. He says, <clears throat> at the beginning of the human race, this is from the city of God, at the beginning of the human race, the woman was made of a rib taken from the side of the man while he slept. Now, you've all heard the point that's supposed to be made from this. That God did not take her from the head, da -da -da -da, nor from the feet, da -da -da -da, but from the side. Da -da 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 -da. You've heard that in weddings, right? And Augustine has a little bit of a different spin on it. He says, for at the beginning of the human race, the woman was made of a rib taken from the side of the man while he slept. For it seemed fit that even then Christ and his church should be foreshadowed in this event. 
For that sleep of the man was the death of Christ, whose side, as he hung lifeless upon the cross, was pierced with a spear, and there flowed from it blood and water, and these we know to be the sacraments by which the church is built up. Looks like Augustine's parsing the Bible, doesn't it? What do you think? You buy it? You can say whether or not you buy Augustine because he's not scripture. Do you think that when take, you think when the Bible says, behold, this is a mystery, but I speak of Christ in the church. Do you think that when Eve was taken out of Adam's side, that it was pointing forward to the substitutionary atonement? Do you think truth is that glorious and beautiful? Do you think women are that beautiful and men? The manner of the woman's creation, says Augustine, prefigured Christ in the church. He then who created both sexes will restore both. Come on, people, smile. Ain't that pretty? That's pretty. Herman Bavink says this. He says, true, Jesus says in Matthew 22:30 that marriage will end with this dispensation. But nevertheless, the sexual relationships on earth have, to a significant extent, increased the spiritual treasures of mankind. And in the resurrection, too, these treasures will not be lost, but will be preserved into eternity. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, sex, it gives us so many good things, and it gives such glory to God. Now, I know you're all sitting there thinking, no, I can't speak that way about my sexuality. It is such a curse of my existence. It is a constant thorn in the flesh, constant temptation. Many of you are like my wife, who when there was a particularly flagrant sexual sin that we were working through in our church, she said to me, you know, Why did God make sex? In other words, we live in a day that it is so nasty to see how this beautiful gift is perverted. It's very hard for us to think of sex being in heaven. So we we take this text and we change it. Instead of it being marriage that the Bible says is not in heaven, we say that it's sex that's not in heaven. And by that, we don't mean simply intimacy. We mean sexual identity. We'll be asexual. We'll be metrosexual. We'll be androgynous. But remember that sexuality was created in the garden prior to the fall. Remember that the relationship of Christ to the church is the relationship of the bridegroom to his bride. And so... I do not believe, Augustine doesn't believe, Bavink does not believe, and let me read a little bit from uh, Hokema. Well, forget reading from Hokema. I don't believe that sex won't be in heaven. I believe that we will be men and women in heaven. I don't know how. I don't know how it will work. I do know one thing about how it will work. There will not be marriage or the giving in marriage. Now, about this time, some of you are thinking, yeah, I guess we are pretty similar to the Muslims. You know, the point isn't that there won't be sex. The point is that there will be 70 virgins. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you will be a a woman or a man. I will be a man that we will retain this beautiful part of our identity, but it will be pure and it won't be exclusive and it won't be jealous. That's the point. 
We will be like the angels. And you look at me with confused looks on your faces, and I say, that's all I can say. That's all she wrote, or he wrote. There's nothing more. Now, there are, th- uh, there are a few other things we know about heaven, and they are things we know by negation. We know, for instance, that in heaven there will be no... Come on. There will be no tears. We know there will be no sickness. We know there will be no no death. We know there will be no... I got gotcha. you. There will be no stomachs. Did you know that? How could I say that? Well, if you listen to this text from First um, <clears throat> Corinthians six thirteen, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Stomach and food will be done. Now, how much more do we know? We really don't know much more at all, except when it comes to the worship of the Lamb. And, you know, it's interesting. We do know that all of us will be joined together in worshiping Jesus Christ. We know that there will be no night there because he is the light. And we know that we won't need the sun because Christ will be the light. Now, what application is there to us in this? Well, number one, to know your Bibles, to know it backwards and forwards. The Bible is very specific and very practical and very true. All right. Number two, we need to know the power of God. God is not limited in his ability to deal with conundrums that we think we've come up with. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible doesn't know us being meshed into some corporate identity such that we lose our individuality and we lose our ability to know each other in heaven. In heaven, we will know each other. And that's not difficult for God. Remember what the Bible says about God. The Bible says that God is able to number every hair on our head. It's not difficult for God to keep track of individuals in heaven. And in fact, in heaven, the beautiful thing about heaven is that in heaven, we will maintain our individuality. We will maintain our identity. Um, Let me read... uh, a very short thing that I think is very good to meditate on concerning heaven and our identity. Uh, A.A. Hodge says this, every glorified body, glorification is what happens in heaven, every glorified body will be articulated to the idiosyncrasies of each individual soul. (laughs) What this means is that in heaven, you will be more you than you've ever been on earth. And that's part of the freedom of perfection. Don't listen to the world. The world tells us that they're the ones that will give us diversity. They're fools. Their diversity is a straitjacket of conformity. It's always the way it's been. Satan always says he's going to give you something and then gives you the opposite and makes you think you got the thing you wanted. In heaven is where your personality will have its fullest expression. You know? All the things that make you, you. That's what Christianity gives you. I've always said that the more holy a Christian becomes, the more interesting they become. And so the holiest old Christian is the most idiosyncratic, weird dude on the face of the earth. 
And the perfect example of that was Rita Cuffey. This godly woman. You walk into her front door and there's boxes, cereal boxes, empty cereal boxes with a rod running between them diagonally so that they're... The first one's sitting on top of the bookshelf, and the next one is in space, and the next one is way off in space, and the next one, so that you're always on edge looking at it, because it's going to fall. No place for people in our house except making their way among the books. The upstairs filled with records. And so as you grow in Christ, you will become idiosyncratic. Not callously insensitive to other people. But whatever God has made you, you will be more that thing as you age in Christ. And then in heaven, you will be completely that thing that he made you to be. Because you won't have the oppression of social conformity. That's why the Christian home is supposed to be such a place of beauty, because in the home we're supposed to be free to be who God made us to be. And it's when you step out of the home that you have to wear all black and and pierce your tongue and hang out at people's park and everybody do dope or coke or whatever you're doing and, like, listen to Nirvana because it's... and watch Lost. You know... It's so pathetic. It's so uninteresting. It's so conformist. I mean, where do you have anything approximating this group of people with these subject matters listening to music like that in Bloomington? There's nothing like it. Everywhere else, if you yell and sing loudly, you're worshiping the IU basketball team. And then you come into the house of God and you're free to worship the creator whose image you bear. And it's right. One final application. If you live your life struggling to deny the brokenness of your body, you get facelifts, take lots of medicine, run. And if you resent every single stretch mark, And if you never confess your sins, and if you live a life that never has to admit your failure to somebody else, and if you're never persecuted for the name of Christ, if you never blush when you're speaking about Jesus, and if you're part of a church that's clean, you will not like heaven. Because heaven is the healing of all of the weaknesses that are intrinsic to life on earth. And so if your whole life is about avoiding the brokenness, if that's what your life is about, avoiding the brokenness of this life, you know nothing of God. Nothing. Do you understand that? Because after all, heaven is something we're supposed to look forward to. How can you look forward to healing when you refuse to admit your brokenness in this life? How can you do it? And not to put too fine a point on it, if your entire life is about trying to live in this life as if you're not 
the oppressed, not the afflicted. You don't bear the wounds of Christ. You're not suffering opprobrium and shame for him. If your whole life is aimed at avoiding taking up your cross and following him, there's absolutely nothing about this table that is appealing to you because this table is the brokenness of the body and the shedding of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be you joining with Christ, participating in his death. You're supposed to come to this table with a hunger and a thirst to be united with him in his sufferings. Because it's been your week. Your week has been, can I go to heaven? Your week has been, why does this body have high blood pressure anyhow? And can I use my right arm and my right leg? And how come I can't speak? Your body is supposed to be, why do I always have to go to a church that's despised? Can't I have a successful church? Can't I have a pastor who repents of his sin and then is done with it for heaven's sakes? Your whole life is aimed at escaping brokenness, and you come to the Lord's table, and it's meaningless to you, isn't it? But if you unite yourself with Christ, if you give yourself to taking up your cross and following him, if you give yourself to losing your life so that he will give it back to you, then heaven's precious, and when you come to the Lord's table, it's food for you because you know what it is in this world to be persecuted. You know what it is to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are, blessed are the negations, for they shall be positived. Okay. So I invite you to the Lord's table, you who are broken, and you who suffer for Christ, and you who give yourself to testifying to Jesus.